Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You are listening to Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure, on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 248 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. And on this week's program, we have a very special item on the bill. It's the debut of a brand new segment titled Global Hobo with JQ Public coming at us directly from the south of France. And we'll be talking with JQ about his journey from the United States of America to the south of France, the definition of hobo, whether or not he's an expatriate, the thin line between courage and being terrified. We talk about how one's either a money person or a time person. We talk about ambition. We talk about art and being hand-to-mouth. Also, a calling, Richard the Lionhearted, as well as a few other things. A great debut to a brand-new segment I'm very excited about Global Hobo with JQ Public today on the program. We also have an EW essay titled December, and our associate producer and resident essayist shares the work of Franz Kafka, a bit of it at least, an excerpt from his work titled Josephine the Singer. And we also have a poem titled France. As is always the case, this will be ensconced within several great tunes. It's nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 248 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours. They say you're going away It's a midnight flight But there's only good in leaving With a suitcase full of loot Cause where's all the good times In a pocket full of IOUs Take the cash Don't let them pay you in kind Take the cash Before they change their minds And let's see the
December. The beginning of December, watering the plants next to a chair, within a house complete with a Rockwellian mouse in this physical representation of my happenstance. A cup of coffee steams into the ionosphere as I try to stand clear of the morning newspaper with headlines of deceit, drama, and despair. Knowing so many believe to not have the time or luxury to really care, I wonder if Kafka's Josephine might glean some bright light and hope on this fantastic scene. Dance me right into the next room, where I might take to the rarely used wood-handle straw-bristle broom and sweep these floors toward clean rather than weep normal human struggles until this soul, mind, and heart become so lean. As one becomes a self-indulgent fool, slowly destroying all inside, you should know unchecked dower and worry elicit cowardice, and it will in such a context most certainly abide. You mustn't let it, for the good of humanity and for the good of all those people in your context who count on you, or at least are affected by you. A few may even love you, too. Time for a conscientious swallow of my coffee before it turns cold. The sun, so sultry, rises again this early December morn. Stop that.
some going east and some gone west some stand aside to try their best some living big but the most is living small they just can't even find no food at all I mean starving stop that train JQ Public, is that you? How are you? So, set me straight here. We are immediately on the air. Is that right? We are on the air. Yes, we are. This so, is the debut of Global Hobo with JQ Public on Troubadours and <laughs> Rock on Tours. And here we go, right on the air. No foreplay or anything. You're not going to even buy me a drink first. That's how you roll. <laughs> That's correct. You have to get your own booze. <laughs> I understand right into it. I can I, I can roll with that. I mean, why beat around the bush? Bushes aren't popular now anyway, <laughs> either in personal hygiene or in political dynasties. <laughs> oh, this is going to be fun. I can tell. I'm looking forward to it. It's uh, it's been it's been many years we've known each other, and I'm excited to be sharing your insight and your journey with our radio listeners. And uh, I guess basically, what I'm asking you to do in this first segment of your uh, newfound glory, global hobo. Uh, I want you to, I want you to summarize your your journey from you know, as far back as you would like to the present day within twenty five minutes. Oh yeah, no problem. I'll just give you my life story in the Cliff Notes version. Is that it? Yeah, basically. So we can set the tone. All right. Well, I, I think a, a, a more convenient way to do that. I mean, I'll give a few of the basic general facts, but it, it might be to zero in on why we decided to, to call this segment Global Hobo. It's a word I've that's been associated with me, with my music and, and for, for a while now. Uh, but first of all, yeah, the basic facts. I, I, I grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania, uh, moved down to Philadelphia, <clears throat> where I went to university and lived for close to a decade. I worked uh, a bunch of different jobs. I was, I was a writer. Uh, uh, an investigative journalist on one hand, sort of writing, you know, smash the state uh, political essays, um, and at the same time writing plays and radio plays and working on fiction and living a sort of urban bohemian existence at that time. And, and uh, in 1994, uh, due to a bunch of personal things going on and a, 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 an expanding level of frustration, I took off. 
And that's when this journey that I've been on ever since started. Uh, I ended up more or less, I guess you would call it settling in the south of France. But for a long time, that was more or less my headquarters. And I was living and still am living very hand to mouth and traveling a lot. And so I spent a lot of time in the Far East in India. Uh, I moved around Europe quite a bit whenever I could. Uh, I spent a lot of time on the island of Corsica in the Mediterranean. Uh, which is a part of France, but is its own little world. Uh, Germany, Ireland, Spain, you know, and always living hand to mouth, which I have to say is easier now than in Europe than it is in America. Yes. Um, and uh, during all of this, I was a writer and a musician, uh, songwriter and performer. Uh, more in the later years, I've turned more and more toward the music. Uh, I wrote, I'm, I'm so underground that the underground looks down to find me, um, you know, and, and publishing poetry and fiction and, in you know, fly by night literary journals. Uh, I, you know, my, my first book of poetry was published in India, <laughs> which is just how underground I am. Um, and I'm still here in France today, still basically living this lifestyle, uh, though it's it's been modified and altered in all sorts of ways. Um, but I want to zero in on the word hobo and that it, that it was a deliberate choice um, because it actually does relate to why I took off and, uh, and how my life has gone. Um, so basically, you know, when we say hobo, it, it sort of means vagabond or bum, really, you know, colloquially, right? But the hobo is a part of American mythology, like the cowboy, you know. And actually, for me, there's sort of a straight line that runs from the early frontiersmen through the, 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 the cowboy, through the hobo, which the hobo begins, let's say, post-Civil War, right? You have all these young men that ride the rails, really, and, and travel all around the country finding work so, and then to keep moving and to have – uh, one of the reasons to do that is personal freedom. You know, there's other economic necessities that come into it that create hobos that wouldn't be hobos. But a lot of that is that you just sort of don't fit into the general system, right? And for me, as America goes from the industrial age to the technological age, that frontiersman, then cowboy, then hobo, uh, as as frontiers shrink in terms of the country is more crowded and it's all sort of been done, it, then you get the beatnik is the next thing we see, right? Yeah. Where they're hitchhiking around the country and the beatniks become the hippies and then it becomes about the frontier of consciousness expansion and, and drugs and it all sort of uh, gets very decadent and everything. And eventually you get punk, which is, you know, if you think of punk rock, because all of these movements I'm naming have their soundtracks. If you think of you know, uh, Woody Guthrie, country music, the old high, high lonesome sound, as Keith Richards calls it, country music and uh, the, the folk music and, and the road music of the hobo and then the, the jazz and blues that comes in with the beatniks and, and then eventually rock and roll and rock music and even progressive rock and all of these things. Eventually, you get punk, which is blow everything up. And where did this all start with the raw energy? Right. And that's the frontier. And so the way I left the country, uh, it, it was out of a growing sense of frustration and just feeling hemmed in and looking for that frontier that I couldn't find. And that was a punk rock move, really. It, it, looking in retrospect now, you know, with my 2020 hindsight, it was a way of getting back to what inspired me in the first place. Because I should mention as well that 
I mentioned all of these, uh, you know, myths of the American frontier and how they've developed. They have a soundtrack, each one, and they're all different. And all of those various types of music very much inform the type of music I've made as a songwriter as well as JQ Public, you know, which is basically my stage name. Um, and so there it is, Global Hobo. That's what it's about. <laughs> I went out into the world looking for it. Would you, know? you consider yourself uh, also uh, an expatriate of the United States of America? Well, technically speaking, I am. I mean, am I an expatriate in my heart? No. Uh, you know, uh, America is the first global society. It's a prototype, really, isn't it? I mean, that, that that you know, the world dreamed of America before the American dream existed. In the sense that you, you, there was this dream of a land where you know all the peoples of the world could come together and create a multicultural society, you know, and and it's been it's had successes and failures, and it's still a, a big mess. But you're never an expatriate of that if you believe in that. Yeah, you can physically be removed from the country, but I don't feel French. Maybe I'm some sort of hybrid or what have you. You know, but I think anybody who is, you know, there's a lot of people out there, they don't fit into the nine to five mold. And uh, if you realize it young enough, you know, you, you decide to lead a different type of life and it brings about its own challenges. And, and th there's nothing superior about it. You know, to people I have most of my friends back in the States, they have their careers and most people just get by, you know. Uh, I decided to do something a little different, but even then I decided, you know, there were a lot of pressures in my life and a lot of uh, neurosis and suffering pushing me to, to, to make that move, you know. I, I spoke with a woman in India once when I described my life to her. She said it was very courageous to leave. I said, I wasn't courageous. I was, I was terrified. She said, sometimes there's no difference. Hmm. And I thought that was a very wise thing. Yeah, terror, being terrified and being courageous, a fine line. Yeah, I have, a, I have a song that I haven't released yet called Brave, and the, the hook in the chorus is, to be brave, you must be afraid. And I think there's a line in Game of Thrones that says something to that effect. Like Ned Stark uh, says to Jon Snow maybe at some point, you know, he says, I wasn't courageous, I was afraid. And he says, that's the only time you can be courageous. Right. You have to be afraid to be courageous. Right, right. Courage is being able to deal with the fear. Exactly. They go together. Yeah. So what, I mean, what do you think you were terrified about? You, you talked about pressures and, and the neuroses. Right. Okay. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, my parents, who were lovely people, um, watching them growing up, uh, they just worked their tails off all the time for my sister and I. You know, I mean, I come from a, a really, a family of very good people, you know, good folk. And I was very frustrated because I could see their frustration and that that's all they did was work, work, work. And I figured out if I pat myself on the back for anything in all of this, it's that I figured out quite young that that cliched expression, time is money, is not true. But there's, there's truth in it. You know, time is time and money is money. But the truth in there is that there's a choice to make, right? If you're going to go for the money, you're going to sacrifice your time. If you're going to have a career, you give up a lot of freedom to do that, a lot of free time where you might be doing other things. But if you're going to go for the time, having free time in order to do things that are not lucrative but are your passions or your so on and so forth, uh, then you're going to give up the money because you're not going to be able to focus on a career. 
And I think a lot of people that are of an artistic bent uh, in particular or who are, say, people who end up being social workers and nurses who are driven by empathy and compassion and actually wanting to help people, I think they're in a similar spot. You know you're never going to be well paid. A lot of people end up as teachers, for instance, that, that they're not artists or creative types. They're not, but they're not, you know, looking to be high-powered lawyers. They're, you know, we overrate ambition in our society and, and the career uh, to a, an extremely unhealthy degree. Um, so I actually, again, I figured out early on that I was a time guy. What I needed was time because I was clearly more interested in books and music and that sort of thing. And I did try to compromise, you know, I went to university and studied uh, journalism and media and literature. I was sort of a double major. And I journalism, I didn't really want to be a journalist. I ended up doing it for quite a while. Uh, but I realized that, you know, being an artist, the odds of monetizing your art, uh, people know that it's hard, but when you begin to look at the raw numbers, it's staggeringly difficult. And people who make it are sponsored generally by people in, in the industries, and they are like lottery winners. And you might have noticed looking around you, nothing is more common than unrewarded talent. But, uh, you know, we know that deciding to be an artist is is a crazy thing to do, right? But if you really have it in you and it's a calling, you know, uh, you're going to suffer if you don't try and if you don't live for that. And I kind of recognize that early on. But here's a number, for instance, EW, to give you a notion of exactly how hard it is to make it as an artist. And this, I, I first heard this from um, a Canadian intellectual and lecturer who's gotten a buzz on internet for all the wrong reasons. His name is Jordan Peterson. Uh, I started watching his stuff because he has some great lectures on Nietzsche and Dostoevsky and some of my favorite writers. Uh, he pointed out that currently there are, roughly speaking, 80 million songs available for download, you know, for sale, on the internet. 80 million. Wow. And that of those 80 million, 70 million have been downloaded exactly zero times. <laughs> now, my songs have all been downloaded at least once, so I am in the elite 10 million <laughs> of artists, and I don't make diddly off of my music. You know, I've made more playing concerts. Uh, but even then, I came and did a mini tour of this, of you know, in, in the states. I played a bunch of concerts over there, in the tri-state area back in 20, 2014. It was the last time I've played live. And at the end of the day, after playing all the concerts and, and doing the the radio shows and, and and all the stuff we did over there, uh, I basically paid for my plane ticket and my trip. So I came back home at zero out of all of that, which isn't so bad. <laughs> Which is great and was a marvelous experience, and I'm thankful for it. You know, I, I live very hand-to-mouth. I make my money in other ways, but, uh, you know, I, I managed to have a lot of free time so I can continue to create, which is I've really been focusing on studio work for the last few years. Right. And travel, of course, and I'll be coming to the States just to travel uh, this April for a few weeks. And and all and all of this, I mean, the the reflection that you're sharing with us now, 
to to what I mean, I guess the realization that you've, you've come to a couple of different realizations is that it's it's not lucrative to be an artist, uh, though you have more time time to do what it is that your passion drives you to do. Um, and are you happy with the choices you've made then? It seems like you are. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I, I, you know, it, it's that old Joseph Campbell line, follow your bliss. Right. Uh, you still suffer. You're going to suffer in this life. And you're, but you, you have to assume responsibility for your choices. Right. Yeah. And right. Suffer so, yeah, in your own context. Well, yeah, right. So we all, we all are in hell and each in his own way. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I certainly have no regrets. That's one thing that I've found very common when I went back to the States. I saw a lot of people that I haven't seen in years. Uh, and even though they had far steadier and more stable lives than I do, you know, I'm, I'm living alone in a foreign country in a ruin of a farmhouse in France's farm belt, basically. And I'm raising two kids while I'm at it. Uh, there was a lot of very openly expressed jealousy of, of how I was living. Uh, and I'm poor as a church mouse, you know. Uh, and it cut both ways because I could look at them with, with their, you know, with their retirement funds and everything, not having to worry about getting old so much. Uh, and I could be jealous as well. So, uh, you know, I don't put one uh, style of life above the other. It's just figure out who you are. And whether you're a time person or a money person, I guess, you know, um, and certainly if you're going to travel, if if travel is your big thing, you really do have to learn to travel on the cheap, which was easier when I set out to do it. And during the years I was doing it than it is now, I have to admit what I really feel that I really feel sorry for young people coming up. I talk to a lot of young people as well in the States and here in Europe and and. They're not going to have the types of options that I did, and it wasn't long ago that I. Why not? That I pulled. Why, why do you off. think they're not going to have the types of options that you you had? Economics have gotten harder. For instance, even to to live the type of when I still lived in Philadelphia, and I was I was a journalist, and and you know, uh, it was so much easier to work less and and find cheap rents and and you know the cool bohemian neighborhood. Uh, somebody I know in the States moved to Brooklyn about a year and a half ago, uh, you know, an aspiring actress. And I was in constant correspondence with this person and it was, it was just too hard for her, uh, with a full-time job. Um, and somebody, somebody else sharing the rent, uh, you know, and living really, there was no time. The job was too demanding. Uh, I always found ways around that. And I think it's getting harder and harder to do that. I really do. I think for young people, it's, you know, they're graduating with more debt now than even we knew, right? We're about the same age. And economically, I, there's just less and less room. The frontier is always shrinking in that sense. But as I see it now, I'm, you know, I could be wrong. I'm certainly there's people pulling it off out there. But from what I see and what I see here in Europe as well, it's tough. Yeah. And for instance, I was able to get cheap plane tickets back in the day when I felt like taking off to another country. That's gotten a lot harder to do as well. 
So we're just becoming more and more uh, sort of trapped, it seems, in in uh, the in regard to the the number of choices we have and the way that we can indeed live our lives. We don't have as many options. We're forced maybe to to become a cog in the system if you want to make it economic. It, it can certainly feel that way. It's it's very hard to say if that's actually the case. But I, 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 I'm half convinced that it is the case. Let's put it that way. It generally seems that way. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure, on Radio Free Brooklyn. So yeah. what do you think you're, you're – I know you talked about ambition being overrated. Uh, so I'm not I'm – not, I guess you must have some sort of ambition. What, what are you trying what, – what is life – from here on for you? What are you trying to accomplish? What, what, All right. Well, I, I, I got very lucky because I, uh, I, I was taught a, a good lesson very young. And this is when I still lived in Philadelphia and I was, you know, uh, the, the young urban hip guy, you know, basically, uh, you know, in my early 20s, writing for a local magazine, a weekly magazine, uh, on politics and uh, and then writing plays that were in like little local theaters and things like that and on the radio and living that life. And how can I put this? Basically, I had a minor celebrity. Uh, you know, the, the, the magazine I wrote for had about 200 to 300,000 readers per issue and I was writing the cover stories. So I got a little taste on a small scale in a, in a metropolis, a major metropolis, Philadelphia, which is what, the fifth largest city in America, I guess? Yeah. What it's like to be known. In other words, I would be in parties or in functions and I would be introduced. This is John Quinn. He writes for City Paper. And the person would say, oh, you wrote that article on underground AIDS drugs, you know, the underground AIDS drug market. This is back in, you know, 1990, right? So that was a big story back then. I'm like, yeah, and so you're known, and you're a known quantity. And, uh, or I, I, you know, oh, I saw that play or, or whatever, right? And I had a little bit of that. And I quickly realized that the joy that I took from actually creating the art outweighed massively any sort of little buzz, that sort of passing buzz you get when somebody knows who you are and they say, good job, and they pat you on the shoulder, right? Now, you do it for that reason. It's communication. If you make music, if you write poetry or stories or whatever you do or you paint, you're doing it. It's a form of communication. You're, but, you know, it's, you're trying to go a bit deeper and bring something out that, that's important that you can't put into words in any other form. Otherwise, you would, right? Mm-hmm. You have to say through a poem or through a song or through a – right? You're trying to communicate. But the real reward of it is actually doing it. You know, uh, feeling that inspiration and, and creating something good. And as long as you're in that, you can survive. That is the basis of it. So in other words, going back to this, what I need is time, not money. Or I need time more than I need money. You need time to create things. And you, you need a lot of downtime, actually, because you need to gestate your, you know, and, and have experiences as well um, to, to, to get to that place of inspiration. So... Once you're there, like living that, and you realize that, oh, that's actually why I do this, then the whole side that is ambition, I'm going to succeed, I'm going to make my mark, I'm going to be famous or this or that, or I'm going to win this or that prize or award, or I'm going to have fans, 
you begin to see it in a different light if you take a hard look. It's it's less important than actually doing it. As long as you're doing it, you're okay. And if you're not doing it, I guess it's it feels pent up. Uh, well, that's the downside of how I learned it, yeah. I, I spent time not doing it, and those were always difficult periods in my life. The neurosis uh, gets more of uh, a pronounced... Uh, has more of a pronounced uh, effect on your on your being, I suppose. Yeah, you begin to get a lot of anxiety for no real reason. And you realize you're just in a state of anxiety that no matter what you think about, you're going to turn it into something that will make you nervous and, and sad, right? Do you think there are a lot of people out there who have this in them and don't realize it and, and don't thus don't exercise or cultivate it and, and are... Uh, than feeling anxiety and feeling distraught and such? Yes and no. I, I think it's extraordinarily common to feel that pressure to a point. I think the number of people that actually have a very deep calling for artistic creation, which is also a sort of, you know, it's almost like a mental illness. It's like if you if you don't take a lot of time doing this particular thing, you, you're not well, right? So it's it's like having a condition. But I think people that really, really have a very serious calling for it are, you know, probably quite, well, relatively rare. But people, but at the same time, it's a necessity in every human life to get in touch with that part of yourself at the very least, if you follow me. I do. So that it's, it's extremely common. Yeah. To, and that's why, you know, when I travel around, uh, I meet so many people that express that frustration. You know, it's, it's almost, I'd call it universal, but I'm, you know, I can't verify for a fact that it is. It seems universal, that yeah. need. And that's why art is so important in culture, you know, in, in society, so that people are more f- uh, fully living their lives. Yeah, you, you would think that the politicians would get that uh, art is an extraordinarily valuable economic entity in the sense that like if you look at this okay you take france france is by an order of magnitude the 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 most touristic country on the on the planet in terms of the number of people that it attracts relative to its population and just in terms it's it's kind of like america with military spending it just beats the second place guy by a landslide right and why well, I live out in the, you know, basically in the sticks in France. I'm, I'm in the southwest. It's beautiful down here. And any village I go to around here, it's all Bastides and all these 13th century villages. You know, all of this stuff would be in a museum if it was back in the States. You know, I mean, just down the road from me, like five minutes away, there are the ruins of one of Richard the Lionheart's fortresses from the Hundred Years' War. It's right there. I've, I've walked on it. And, you know, I, I see it when I go to buy bread basically. And all of that uh, has been preserved here. And the architecture and the painting and, and all, you know, the, Europe's and France in particular, its focus on the arts is the whole reason why this, just how lovely this country is, you know, uh, aesthetically. That's what attracts the tourists. Why would they come to what is essentially France's farm belt? You know, it's, it's our Idaho down here, but it's absolutely lovely. It's aesthetically beautiful, and there's tons of, 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 you know, it's always fostered the arts, and it, it was the hotbed of, you know, this is the Aquitaine and, and Provence, you know, these regions of France, of, of the, uh, the troubadour poetic traditions, and, and Bordeaux and Toulouse are down here, these, these beautiful cities. 
there's a reason. And there's all these 13th century villages out in the middle of nowhere and all this architecture and this painting and these incredible churches, you know. So it's valuable. It means the local economies stay alive when there's not much industry to speak of. And would you say the people... I live because of France tour, France's tourism. And would you say the people are happy because they have this, more happy than they might be uh, otherwise? If, if uh, I think probably. I mean, you know, there's no barometer to measure that, right? But it seems sort of self-evident, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, JQ Public, we're just about done, believe it or not, uh, with this first installment of Global Hobo, getting a little insight and background on on who you are and, and what you're about. And we'll be talking to you regularly. You're a new regular contributor, a new segment yes, I'll, on the program. I'll be regularly boring your listeners to tears. Not boring at all. And we're going to feature some of your music as well. That's your biggest uh, sort of um, uh, way of of producing your artistic impulse and uh and and such right music well yeah i mean people can look up jq public on itunes on amazon spotify deezer wherever you go to listen to music and uh there's there's a few videos on youtube and it's all you know roots hand to mouth uh on the road music made with musicians from all over the place and uh any closing thoughts before we uh sign off this go around no <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that you never get that answer so no i absolutely have no closing thoughts i think i've already thrown too many thoughts on the table except this i'm really happy to be doing your show again it's been a long time and uh thanks to the marvels of internet yeah i'm happy to have you back yeah here's one for you you've got this guy surf william yes a regular contributor yep yeah, who was who Marxist. calls himself a Marx a Marxist? Yeah. yeah, okay. Well, you know, you can set it up one day. He's an obsequious hippie pinhead, and I would be happy, only too happy, to to argue about the the horrible errors of Marxism with him. Oh, so you've you've thrown down the gauntlet. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we can we we can do this as a three way one day. <laughs> we'll have a three way. A menage a trois. All right, love it. You heard it here first. <laughs> Thank you so much, JQ Public. Enjoy the rest of uh, this this season, and we'll be talking to you probably after the holidays. Thank you, EW. Peace and abundance your way, brother. Ciao. Ciao. Another life. Another life. 
sang the song of song Some said maybe the blues We're still singing Cause this rock ain't gonna roll itself So go and talk it out with your God If you ain't gonna help No, I don't buy that slick rap out the fake stand Says there's nothing to do So you can say that chit-chat skip that shit, man It ain't about you A yes or no in a straight line And the goal is making time Jonah told the way open wide And stepped inside cause he was dying to find Another life Another life Another life From Josephine the Singer, or The Mouse Folk, by Franz Kafka. Our singer is called Josephine. Anyone who has not heard her does not know the power of song. There is no one but is carried away by her singing, a tribute all the greater, as we are not in general a music-loving race. Tranquil peace is the music we love best. Our life is hard, we are no longer able, even on occasions when we have tried to shake off the cares of daily life, to rise to anything so high and remote from our usual routine as music. But we do not much lament that. We do not get even so far. A certain practical cunning, which admittedly we stand greatly in need of, we hold to be our greatest distinction. And with a smile born of such cunning, we are wont to console ourselves for all shortcomings, even supposing, only it does not happen, that we were to yearn once, in a way, for the kind of bliss which music may provide. Josephine is the sole exception. She has a love for music and knows, too, how to transmit it. She is the only one. When she dies, music, who knows for how long, will vanish from our lives. At her concerts, especially in times of stress, it is only the very young who are interested in her singing as singing. They alone gaze in astonishment as she purses her lips, expels the air between her pretty front teeth, half dies in sheer wonderment at the sounds she herself is producing and after such a swooning swells her performance to new and more incredible heights. Whereas the real mass of the people, this is plain to see, are quite withdrawn into themselves. Here in the brief intervals between their struggles our people dream. It is as if the limbs of each were loosened, as if the harried individual once in a while could relax and stretch himself at ease in the great warm bed of the community. And into these dreams Josephine's piping drops note by note. She calls it pearl-like. We call it staccato. But at any rate, here it is in its right place, 
as nowhere else, finding the moment wait for it, as music scarcely ever does. Something of our poor, brief childhood is in it, something of lost happiness that can never be found again, but also something of active daily life, of its small gaieties, unaccountable and yet springing up and not to be obliterated. And indeed, this is all expressed not in full round tones, but softly, in whispers, confidentially, sometimes a little hoarsely. Of course, it is a kind of piping. Why not? Piping is our people's daily speech. Only many a one pipes his whole life long and does not know it. Where here piping is set free from the fetters of daily life, and it sets us free, too, for a little while. We certainly would not want to be without these performances. The time will soon come when her last notes sound and die into silence. She is a small episode in the eternal history of our people, and the people will get over the loss of her. Not that it will be easy for us. How can our gatherings take place in utter silence? Still, were they not silent even when Josephine was present? Was her actual piping notably louder and more alive than the memory of it will be? Was it even in her lifetime more than a simple memory? Was it not rather because Josephine's singing was already past losing in this way that our people in their wisdom prized it so highly? So perhaps we will not miss her very much after all. While Josephine, redeemed from the earthly sorrows which to her thinking lay in wait for all chosen spirits, will happily lose herself in the numberless throng of the heroes of our people, and soon, since we are no historians, will rise to the heights of redemption and be forgotten like all her brothers.
transported from one set of hands to another set. No bag for the baguette. It happens inside an old stone structure on a cobblestone street, just around the bend from a phone booth below a handcrafted stone wall. Trees of September support natural, the scene. And back to the immigrant camp site, we stroll with bread and calls to our native home unfurled. Some 
There you have it, episode 248 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our newest contributor, writer, musician, artist, vagabond, J.Q. Public, for talking with us within his new segment titled Global Hobo. Enjoy the south of France, my friend. I also would like to thank our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, for sharing with us some wonderful work of Franz Kafka. I'd like to thank and take a special bow to these wonderful musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, 
Reckless Eric, Bob Marley and the Whalers, JQ Public, Grimes, Joni Mitchell, and of course, Terrence Blanchard and Branford Marsalis, too. Thanks so much for listening. Until next week, enjoy this one. <laughs>